The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. Interesting people, relatable stories, relevant, topical. This is 630 Chad Afternoons with Jaylen Nye. To hockey on last night. I don't know that many of you were necessarily watching the American Musical Awards. And probably a lot of you struggling to to make sense of the significance of the American Music Awards. I mean, don't we have the Grammys? There's the Billboard Music Awards, the MTV Music Awards. There's a lot. Now, there's also the Junos, of course, which uh, honor the best in Canadian music. But when it comes to pop music in the U.S., there just seem to be a whole lot of different awards. And you got to wonder, what's what's the point of it all? Uh, now, it was all about Taylor Swift at the American Music Awards last night. And obviously, look, Taylor Swift is uh, clearly one of the biggest stars in popular music today. And probably in terms of record sales and, and significance, maybe one of the biggest ever. Um, Taylor Swift made some history last night, breaking the record long held by Michael Jackson. Uh, she now has 29 American Music Awards, uh, surpassing the number that uh, Michael Jackson collected. He won 25. So a lot of people debating, does this mean that Taylor Swift was, is better, was better than, than Michael Jackson? It seems like a weird debate, or at least a weird way of measuring that debate. Taylor Swift is a massive star today. 30 years ago, Michael Jackson was a massive star. 30, 35 years ago. I guess it's been a while. Um but certainly, I mean, I think the king of pop is still the king of pop, despite, obviously, all the controversies around him. But I wanted to talk a bit more about why we seem besieged with all of these different music award shows and uh, whether music fans are kind of being manipulated by all of this. Uh, joining us uh, for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, music writer, broadcaster, historian Alan Cross. You can follow him on Twitter at Alan Cross and much more at his website at journalofmusicalthings.com. Alan, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome to the program. Oh, you're, you're welcome. <laughs> this is a good, I get pretty exercised. <laughs> yes, you do. Yes, you do. Um, well, talk about, first of all, I mean, how, how, these, these awards have been around really since the early 70s. So this isn't a new creation necessarily, but why do we have so many different music? Music Award. Okay, there were three major music awards in the United States. The Grammys, the Billboard Music Awards, and the American Music Awards. They were created in 1973 when ABC went to Dick Clark and said, look, we lost the contract to broadcast the Grammy Awards to CBS. We need a competitor. So Dick Clark Productions created it, and the American Music Awards have been happening ever since. Now, what you have to understand about music awards programs is that they have nothing to do with awards. They have nothing to do with excellence. They have nothing to do with any of those things. They are only there for two reasons. Number one, they are a primetime mainstream TV variety show. The idea is to get as many eyeballs watching as you possibly can so you get ratings. The second is for the music industry, it's a chance to goose sales one last time for records that have been out for a while. The Grammys are the best example of that because the first quarter of any year is the worst time of the year for music sales. So the Grammys next year come up, coming up on January the 26th, and the idea there is to squeeze anything else they possibly can out of records that were released in 2019. American Music Awards, on the other hand, hmm, what did they happen on the Sunday before Black Friday? Right. Wow, what a surprise. So they're there to create uh, hype for the Christmas shopping season, which in America officially begins on Friday. It is all about uh, getting big stars to appear. And one of the ways you can guarantee a big star to appear is to 
to flatter them with some kind of special award. In this particular case, we have Taylor Swift getting her uh, Performer of the Decade Award. And this didn't happen two weeks ago, three weeks ago, four weeks ago. This has been in the works for a year. And the whole idea was, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to create all kinds of hype with Taylor's album. We're going to incorporate this appearance on the American Music Awards in late November with the release of the album, with the release of singles, with the release of any information on tours, all that sort of stuff, building up so that we can have this big song and dance number on the show during prime time so we sell more records just in time for... um, uh, Black Friday. So, sorry to disabuse anyone of the notion that these awards shows mean anything in terms of actual excellence. Uh, it, that's that's not their purpose. That that was never how they were designed. And if you look at the awards, I mean, last night, for example, there were six categories with the word rock in the title. Yeah. <laughs> so, and those those awards were won by Taylor Swift twice, Halsey, Drake. Uh, Billie Eilish and one other person. Not exactly, you know, rock. But these are artists that are top of mind in mainstream audiences' minds these days. So uh, we'll see. The other thing, too, to consider about the American Music Awards is that they have been tanking in terms of ratings. Last year, with all of the star power that they had, they managed to attract 6.5 million eyeballs. Big deal. So they needed to hit one out of the park this year. So, I mean, you look at somebody like Taylor Swift, who really doesn't need the promotion, but it's, I guess it's maybe less about promoting Taylor Swift than getting Taylor Swift on this program so that you can promote everybody else. Is that it? Well, it's, it's, it's sort of a quid pro quo thing. I'm sorry I said that word. Oh. <laughs> but I've been hearing that a lot lately. I, I know, it, it, but it is that. I mean, you know, it is promotion. Taylor does need the promotion. This album has not sold as well as her previous six. It's also a part of um, her. It's her first record with a with Republic Records, which is her her new deal. I mean, if we can all get we can get into that where she left Big Machine to go to Republic Records, and then Big Machine was sold to Ithaca Holdings. Took her master recordings with them, and now Taylor's all upset that she doesn't own her master recordings and blah blah blah. But no, this is this is definitely a. Um, a, a, a cooperative venture. Uh, get Taylor on TV. Hey, anytime you can you can play your big songs on TV, you do it. You take that chance. Secondly, it gives the American Music Awards some kind of credibility with their audience. I mean, it's fine to have you know Lizzo and Billie Eilish on there, but uh, you know you get Taylor Swift. That's that's ten times the star power. Yeah, and it's it's taken on a weird kind of debate with now this this Michael Jackson versus Taylor Swift, which seems odd to me. I mean, very different artists, very different eras. Does this add anything to to any kind of a, an understanding or comparison of their, their legacy and impact? Only on their resume and for their hype folder, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> hey, you know, it's just like we hear about Drake breaking all kinds of chart awards that, uh, you know, make him you know, better than the Beatles. Uh, <laughs> right. It's like, okay, hang on, hang on. You know, there are, there are lies, damn lies and statistics. And this is a, an example of, of damn statistics. It's, it's, yes, you know, you have a bunch of awards, but big deal. What does it really matter? Who does it serve saying that she has more American Music Awards than anyone else? It serves Taylor Swift, and it serves the American Music Awards. Again, big deal. Um, 
there's just, you know, with Michael Jackson, it was a completely different era. He was selling records by the tens of millions. And, you know, it, it, was, it was a completely, you know, the metrics were completely different. Mm-hmm. And to, you know, Michael Jackson had been around from, let's say, 71, 72 until he died in 2009. I mean, that's a long, long, powerful, influential utterly amazing career uh, how long is Taylor Swift around and, and what sort of influence has she had and how many records has she sold compared to Michael Jackson I mean it, it's 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 a silly statistic, and it doesn't matter to anybody except Taylor Swift and the AMAs. Yeah. Hey, let me ask you about StubHub, and it, it's an interesting story about how big the concert business is, I guess as well as professional sports at, at some level. But StubHub uh, just got sold. eBay is, is unloading StubHub for a massive amount of money. Alan, what, what does that represent to you? Well, $4.05 billion U.S. is a lot of cash. Now, um, StubHub was created by a business student back in 2000, and, well, in the early 2000s. He ended up selling that to eBay in 2007 for $310 million. Not bad for a little project that you did in business school. Yeah. This guy then went on, after a certain period of time, to found a company called Viagogo. Viagogo was based out of London, and it became a massive seller of tickets on the secondary market. Viagogo is the company that bought StubHub from eBay. So eBay went from spending $310 million in StubHub to earning $4.05 billion. <laughs> Pretty good investment. And the guy that's running Viagogo, who will fold it into, I don't know if the StubHub Maple will continue or if they'll be rebranded under the Viagogo banner, uh, he obviously knows what he's doing because that's a, you know, Viagogo does a very good amount of business in the secondary market. So that'll tell you how much is, is, is out there, how much is to be made, and how much people are willing to spend to get tickets to get into a show. Um, so you you don't do your do you don't spend that kind of money. And this is cash. This isn't, you know, a stock swap or a, or a debt exchange or anything like that. This is four billion dollars in cash. So the Viagogo guy must know how he can get the same kind of return that eBay got when they bought StubHub from him. Well, I think a lot of people who go to events or use services like StubHub are worried that in order to make back this $4 billion, maybe that means uh, higher fees, we're, we're going to be uh, squeezed a little bit more. Does that seem likely to you? It's possible, but remember that StubHub is very, you know, the secondary market as a whole is very, very sensitive to market conditions. Yeah. If people are willing to pay, well, people are willing to pay. If they're not willing to pay, remember, this is dynamic pricing. These tickets go, these prices of these tickets go up and down and up and down. There could be wild swings. So I don't know how they're going to make their money back other than through sheer volume, which seems to be the case. Well, more tours mean more tickets, mean more sales. Uh, That might be one way to do that. Yeah, they're certainly going to be more. They will be more aggressive about this sort of thing, and they will be, as a larger company, certainly lobbying um, authorities in various territories to allow them to do what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, much more on all of this at journalofmusicalthings.com. Uh, folks can follow you on Twitter as well at Alan Cross. Uh, Alan, always appreciate the insight. Thanks for making some time for us here today. You're very welcome.
That is uh, Alan Cross, music writer, broadcaster, historian. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We are back with more on the Chorus Radio Network. Together, we can make Christmas come true for 25,000 less fortunate kids. Please support 630 Ched Santa's Anonymous. This is 630 Ched Afternoons with Jalen Nye. Breckenridge with you here this afternoon. Uh, you know, I mean, for anybody saying sorry is uh, never easy. Uh, for politicians, I think that's doubly or triply true. And especially when you're probably not really sorry. That's the, the situation Rachel Motley found herself in. Now, as you recall last week, she was uh, kicked out of the uh, Alberta legislature. Uh, for repeatedly accusing government House Leader Jason Nixon of misleading the House. I mean, the thing was, he kind of was, right? With this whole debate around Bill 22, uh, the government has argued that the election commissioner position is not being eliminated, which is true. And the NDP have pointed out that you're firing Lauren Gibson, which is also true. Uh, so different interpretations, I guess, of the implications of Bill 22. Uh, and I think given the fact that the premier wasn't there anyway, it was a way of further calling some attention uh, to, to this whole situation. So um, the House Speaker had warned uh, the opposition leader several times, you're not allowed to accuse another member of misleading the House. And under those rules, uh, she was uh, basically sent into the hallway and told that you don't get to come back until you apologize. And again, and, and as an aside here, and I think a lot of people were were dumping on uh, Nathan Cooper for how he handled that. I mean, he's, I, I think, you know, he's done a fairly good job as speaker. And the rules are the rules, even if you think that Notley had a point in all of that. So Rachel Notley was not allowed back into the House until she apologized. Uh, Jason Kenney has returned from his trade mission, which was conveniently scheduled to coincide exactly with the introduction of, the first reading of, the second reading of, the third reading of, and the royal assent of Bill 22. It's a done deal. All of a sudden, the premier's walking off the plane. So he's back in the house. I guess Rachel Notley decided that she ought to be as well. Here was her apology today in the house. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I rise today to address my comments from question period last Tuesday. Last week, we witnessed an unprecedented attack on Alberta's democracy, namely the firing of the elections commissioner while he was actively investigating members and associates of the government caucus. During question period, I used unparliamentary language to describe the government house leader's actions when he claimed that Bill 22 does not fire the elections commissioner. In fact, the bill did specifically fire the elections commissioner, and he has now been fired. In the face of the contradiction that appeared between the statement of the House Leader and the words within the Act, I used unparliamentary language when I said the House Leader was misleading the House. While I retain my position that the House Leader was incorrect when he suggested Bill 22 did not fire anyone, I respect the rules and traditions of this chamber, and as such, I withdraw my comment. Okay, so she withdraws her comment. Um, well, he, I don't know that, that it, her point has changed all that much. Here's a little bit more from, from Rachel Notley today. Last week, we witnessed an unprecedented attack on Alberta's democracy, namely the firing of the elections commissioner while he was actively investigating members and associates of the government caucus. During question period, I used unparliamentary language to describe the government House Leader's actions when he claimed that Bill 22 does not fire the elections commissioner. In fact, the bill did specifically fire the elections commissioner, and he has now been fired. All right, so... Again, it gets back to the different interpretation. In terms of the elimination of a job, that job being the job of elections commissioner, the job has not been eliminated. 
So in terms of the overall number of people who count as government employees, somebody will fill that job, and therefore it's not a net loss of jobs. Lauren Gibson, the person who had that job and the person who had been investigating the UCP leadership race, an investigation that had resulted in more than $200,000 in fines, that particular individual is out of a job. So if you fire somebody from a job and then hire somebody to replace them, then yeah, your overall staffing levels haven't changed, but you can't deny that that person you fired was fired. Now, it's also possible that the uh, chief electoral officer could rehire Lorne Gibson into that job. And that's another point that the government has made. I think the message has been sent loud and clear as to how the government feels about Lorne Gibson because they didn't need to fire him. If you're moving that position into the chief electoral's office, chief electoral officer's office, just move the person along with it. Say, hey, Mr. Gibson, uh, starting uh, on Monday, uh, you're going to be over here and you now answer to this person. So... um, There you go. But they did. They made sure that this person was fired as a result of this bill. So that part is true. And I think the government is is downplaying what is a significant move, obviously, and what seems like a conflict. And again, regardless of what you think about the need for Bill 22 and everything it does, it's not just about Lauren Gibson. It's about all kinds of different agencies, public sector pension plans. The idea that you would invoke closure, ram this through in three days, and to have the premier specifically schedule a trade mission so that he's not there for any of it. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, that, that's cowardly. Look, Jason Kenney's never been known as a guy to, to lack courage. Right? Coming back to Alberta as he did, bringing those parties together, that, that took a lot of courage. But that was pretty cowardly on his part. Stand up in the House and, and defend this. Don't order your... your underlings to do it and then uh, get get out of dodge that, that was cheap all right rob breckenridge with you here this afternoon we're back with more right after this